What does not disqualify you from certain types of corporate spaces, partially because I think we've had to litigate some of this stuff, like your hairstyle or like what bathroom you use, all of those things. Some of that stuff has had to be litigated, but the concepts around the attitudes that we have around body positivity, around disclosing what was considered too personal and just one's presentation are leaps and bounds from where they were when I was coming up where it was like, this is how you dress. Like you never step over the line. So there's a lot of change that I think if you've only been exposed to this way, it's hard to imagine that it used to be different. Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. Now it's time for my favorite segment where we get to hear from you, our listeners, about your favorite fashion moments. Hi, I'm Nikki from Maryland. And of all of the amazing fashion moments that I've experienced, hands down, my favorite fashion moment is when I stalked and met Dirk Heiser, better known as Carl Lagerfeld, in Soho. This was back in March 2010, so it's actually almost 11 years to the day since I met him. Um, At the time, I was a newbie fashion PR intern working in the heart of Soho. One evening, I was leaving my internship and I noticed several Chanel vans outside of the Mercer Kitchen, which happened to be one of Karl Lagerfeld's favorite restaurants and hotels in New York. Now, for additional context, at the time, I was truly Chanel obsessed. Like, I watched every Chanel show, I had just gotten my first Chanel bag, just moved to New York, I had dreams of interning or working at Chanel or attending a Chanel show in Paris. So my heart is literally racing when I saw like all the Chanel vans outside of the Mercer kitchen. So I walked up to one of the vans and I asked the driver what was going on. And thankfully he was super chatty because he gave me so much tea. If he had not had such a big mouth, I never would have been called. So I walked up and asked him, you know, what is going on? And he said, oh, they're shooting the fall winter 2010 campaign um, for the next few days in meatpacking. And then I asked, you know, is Carl Lagerfeld inside? And he replied, yes, he is. So the driver said that they would be departing around 9 a.m. the following day. So if I wanted to catch a glimpse of Uncle Carl to come back around then. I was literally beside myself and I could not like understand my good fortune. I was gonna meet Carl Lagerfeld the next day. So I went to my Harlem apartment and searched high and low for Chanel inspired Luke. And I did actually happen to have that on deck. Uh, I wore a cream tweed blazer lined with black trim, a cream silk ruffle blouse um, with like a pussy bow, and high-waisted black silk trousers, lots of pearls, and then of course my Chanel bag. So the next morning, I arrive just before 9 a.m. and I'm just like hanging out in front of the Mercer kitchen, hoping to catch a glimpse of my favorite designer. Mind you, my internship starts at 9. But I was willing to be late for my internship if I could meet Carl Lagerfeld, right? Uh, So two hours later, like I was told to be there around 9, they did not depart until two hours later, 11 a.m. But around that time, Carl Lagerfeld and all of the models of the moment 
strutted out of the hotel. I mean, it was just like there was so much pomp and circumstance. Like you see Carl, you see Daria Werbewe, Friha Beha, Lily Donaldson, like all of the editorial models from the ads you see in the magazines, just tall and glamorous, smoking cigarettes, wearing leather, just looking effortlessly cool. And then you see the staff, they are like loading these Chanel vans up with gowns and purses and furs. It was just incredible, okay? And I'm standing outside snapping pics on my little Android Samsung phone, trying not to fangirl, but totally fangirling. And then as they were loading up the van, I'm like, Nikki, if you don't hurry up and say something, Carl's gonna leave and you're not gonna get your picture. So I mustered up the courage to ask for a pic. Carl gave me a once over, okay? But then he gave me an approving nod, like, I see you, sis, you look cute. You put in some effort this morning. And I did, my Chanel bag and my fit were popping. Um, and he summoned me forward. Uh, he also looked at my nails, which were a seafoam green hue, and he said, I like your varnish, uh, which I also loved, and I did not change my nail color for like months after that because it was Carl Lagerfeld approved, right? So anyway, he uh, summons me forward, we take this picture, and my life was literally made. Like three months after moving to New York, I met Carl Lagerfeld. So afterwards, I walked into my internship late, like it's like 11.45 at this point. Um, and my bosses were giving me a look like, sis, what possible explanation can you have for being almost three hours late for your internship? I told them why, and I showed them the picture, and they all freaked out. They all freaked out and were like, OMG, you met Carl Lagerfeld? You met Dirk Kaiser? So needless to say, I did not get into trouble that day, thankfully. Um, and as an added bonus, that day, celebrity stylist Memzor Kamaraki, he also happened to be visiting the showroom. And my boss even called me over to him during their appointment and said, tell him the story of how you met Carl. So I got to meet Memzor that day as well. And he also totally freaked out. Like, wow, you met Carl Lagerfeld? So whew, that was just an incredible day. And it had been such a long, cold three months in New York pursuing, you know, fashion PR as my first internship. There were days that I regretted my relocation. Um, but meeting Carl Lagerfeld reminded me of why I left Maryland, because this would never happen in the DMV. The concrete jungle is truly where dreams are made of. What a day. What a fashion moment. <laughs> Hi, fashion family. We're launching a contest in the month of March. Leave us a review and you just might win a $100 gift card to one of my favorite online stores, therealreal.com. My obsession list is out of control, but I regularly consign my wardrobe and it's just so easy. They provide a label and you can even schedule a pickup. I love The Real Real and I'm sure you will too. So we'll announce a winner at the beginning of April. We hope you like what you've heard so far on the Fashion Moment podcast, but this project has truly been a dream come true and we couldn't do it without your support. If you would like to support the podcast, be sure to subscribe, check out our merch at afashionmoment.com shop, and of course, leave a review. 
Now back to the show. Years ago, I spotted a profile piece in Paper Magazine on fashion publicist and consultant Bonnie Morrison. In the early 2000s, finding a Black woman in power on the business side of fashion was quite a rarity. I was hungry and diligent about researching any Black person, especially Black women, who paved the way and descended into some form of a leadership role in the industry. Bonnie Morrison was my muse. She was fashionable, professional, educated, and had an impeccable reputation for being the best of the best. Her mere presence in the industry gave me hope that I too could succeed. Well, thank you, Bonnie for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. I am so thrilled to have you on A Fashion Moment. I'm literally dying on the inside because (laughs) I have been following your work since I began working in fashion back, I mean, geez, like my first internship was like 2005. And I was at DKNY Men's Jeans. Wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it's it's been a minute. And I, I used to look for any, any black people, any brown girls working in the industry, being highlighted in the industry. And there you were. I forget which year it was in paper magazine. And I said, who? is she and i just <laughs> i i just looked around i was asking i was reading and i i just i mean i'm in awe of your trajectory and i am just so here for it and thank you for for really blazing that trail i know you're not like one to be like in the spotlight <laughs> very but, much because you're behind the scenes behind the scenes for sure but thank you it, it, but it's very kind it's very kind and it, and it means a lot but we we the brown girls we love you we were watching <laughs> and you were an inspiration you are thank you so thank you, you. <laughs> thank it you. means a lot so just to like start from the beginning so you grew up in san francisco i did i did i grew up in san francisco i uh, was born and raised in san francisco county it's changed a lot um in the well that certainly the time since i was born in the middle 70s um as anything will change in 40 plus years um but uh yes i was and you know that's a it's an interesting place because it's i would say you know even with all of the industry and how san francisco has become um a real magnet and and hub for a lot of different types of industry and and culturally influential because of tech um, it was, is a fashion wasteland and is not particularly diverse. I mean, I think that there is, you know, there, there are, you know, we, when you kind of visit or when you're growing up, you know, you visit the, you know, we have, you know, the mission kind of mission system, the mission neighborhood. And, um, you know, there's a really strong, vibrant Mexican community, which is wonderful. And, um, you know, the Chinese immigration in, in San Francisco in the, uh, uh in the, the 19th century, um, which is hugely vital and important to the economic development and also the development of the railroads and 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 things like that 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 really shapes the commerce of California. Um, but you know, to be black in Cal in San Francisco is that it's not a huge you know it's certainly not New York. You know, when I first moved to New York, when I first visited New York, I was like, oh wow, there are a lot of black people here, <laughs> which is something that I was not used to seeing. So I think that. Um, 
it's, you know, for all the things that, that you're saying about, you know, sort of to be a, a brown girl in fashion, that was definitely, that, that, you know, that was my own kind of my own path and my own, um, my own exploration. It was certainly not a foregone conclusion coming from where I came from. And I actually had a friend the other day who looking at, um, I was, was showing her a picture of my family and I had already explained to her, I said, you know, nobody in my family cares or even really knows about fashion. And I showed her a picture uh, of them and she's like, oh yeah, nobody knows or cares in your family about fashion, <laughs> which is very funny. Love it. But, yeah. <laughs> I love it. Well, you know, uh, I, I just, I had to delve into your life and just read as much as I possibly could. And there was um, a piece where you mentioned that, you know, your parents divorced and mm-hmm. you went to live with a wealthy Jewish family. Mm-hmm. Like what, what was that transition like for you? Like, what was that experience like? I mean, it's interesting. I mean, th- sort of what I always, the way that I always explain these things is, um, you know, I always, I'm always inclined to sort of start, you know, my story is not what anybody would expect or it's not, you know, it's complicated, but everyone's story is complicated and everyone, you know, I mean, every, every individual, uh, on the planet has a unique story and, and, and we're lucky. I think that we live in an era where we've been given the opportunity, mostly through the internet, um, to find each other and to find people, you know, to find the commonalities that we have, which is wonderful. Um, but you know, everyone has their own take on, you know, and, and, you know, all of the different, you know, the nature and nurture of it. Um, that, that is, and, and that is my family to this day. I mean, it's definitely not, it's, I can tell you, it's not like what you saw in different strokes. Um, it's a little, it's a little bit more, that, that, doesn't, about, exactly, that doesn't look like my story. Um, but I, you know, that's a family that I had known for a really long time and to be, um, and, uh, and through their daughters, whom I now consider my sisters with whom I went to school to elementary school. Um, and so I think I probably encountered them, when I was about eight, um, and then moved in with them when I was 17, kind of to finish college and the way that it ended up, um, the way that it ended up working out of my kind of staying and, and, uh, maintaining and, and, and retaining a relationship with that family was not at all foregone conclusion or what, what I expected. Um, but it's just how it worked out. Um, and you know, it's, I did have, I mean, I, I often describe it as, you know, having, I, I do have, uh, a lot of fluency in the white world and whiteness. I think part of that is coming from San Francisco. Part of it is, you know, having gone to the schools that I went to in San Francisco. Um, I think some of the ideas that we have, you know, all these things change culturally with different, you know, different on the basis of, you know, what celebrities, what shows are popular, what, what musicians are, you know, who's, who, who, you know, who our political figures are, um, what books and what, um, what, you know, uh, intellectuals are talking, how people are talking about, about race and, uh, and, and other issues around, uh, you know, around difference and diversity. So that could be gender, that could be class. Um, so, you know, it, it wasn't as jarring perhaps as it would have been probably because I was older, but it also wasn't as jarring as it might've been, um, had it come, had I not known them, had I been just, you know, sort of placed with them or had the relationship not developed in the way that it has. But I think it, if anything, I think it's been very interesting for them. And this is something that we talk about as a family, what it was like to have a, a member of the family who was not white. And I think the way that it has, the way that it has uh, a bit of what we're seeing um, 
you know, across the country where um, people with, and look, you know, not everyone in America, you know, I think we're, we're very accustomed to white people have white friends, black yeah. people have black friends, Chinese <laughs> people have Chinese friends and so on. And I think that that's something, that's something that is very, you know, as I always say, that's not normal. It's normalized. Yeah. Yeah. It's normalized. And, you know, for all of the that. things that we, that we say about America being a melting pot and, and all these other things, we are, we are really siloed and we're, and, and, you know, ghetto, I, I don't like when people use a ghetto, oh, that's ghetto, but you know, our, our ghettos, our own sort of cultural and class-based ghettos of this is, you know, for, for reasons that actually do have to do with racism. And I think that that is obvious to people who have studied it and who really understand it and perhaps been the recipients of racism for people who haven't, they don't see, oh, well, I never really thought about the fact that I only have friends that look like me and why that is. But I think, um, you know, for them, they, you know, I think it gave them a, um, uh, and I think part of it is also being Jewish because I think, you know, one of the wonderful things about having our, that, that I always say to, to, to my family is, um, because I consider them my family just as my, my father, my, my real father is, is, uh, is deceased, but, but I still obviously have a great relationship with my biological mother and my mother. I was what I just said, what I call her, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> it's, um, you know, they, but I think, you know, the, the, the focus that we have, at least in our family, I can't speak for other Jewish families, but I think part of the faith is the tradition of family. It's the, the, the tradition of giving back, the traditions of community, of continuity, of, you know, what is your place and your obligation to others, whether those others are related to you by blood or whether they are just the people that you see or perhaps don't see, but need your, you know, but need your help. And, and, you know, that, that, um, you know, that real, um, you know, that real belief and investment in, um, you know, your duty, um, as, as, as a human being. Um, so I think it's, so, but as I said, I think they've had a really, um, they perhaps had a bit of a jump start on a lot of the things that people are that I have, you know, white friends who who have said, you know, this is, you know, the, you know, uh, you know, from the, you know, the killing of George Floyd, um, and uh, you know, which which obviously set off so many other conversations and so many other conversations about about the death of of black and brown people and and also LGBT people and trans yeah, people, yeah, particularly. Absolutely. Um, and some of the struggles that really set off this, you know, some of these things that were per- had been percolating for a long time, and that that people that that people in those communities knew about, but white people perhaps didn't. And I think my family, at the very least, because you know, because of, through through the eyes, through my eyes, and through my lens, and and, and my own experience, they had a little bit more exposure to it. Um, so I think it wasn't it wasn't all of a sudden. You know, like, like where's this you know, coming like, from? <laughs> seriously, going like all of a sudden, like you know, you like slamming on the gas and going at hundred yeah. miles an hour. They had they, they had a little bit more of a transition into it, but it's you know, it's definitely an interesting. Um, you know, I, I'm grateful for all of the the people who've been in my in my life, and I think, uh, you know, for the and obviously, I'm sure that this is the direction that we're heading. Um, I think in many ways to have that slightly opposing, not oppositional, but opposing view and opposing experience, I think has, has, I hope is what's been able to, to give me a perspective into work and into some of these identities and some of these spaces um, that's been useful. I hope. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. No doubt.
I would love to know what was going on back in the 90s. I've seen your posts on Instagram, which <laughs> I love. First of all, how in the world did you come up with your name? So it's very funny because, well, now, particularly as you know, there are people on, I mean, I have nieces who are, you know, in their teens and there are, you know, I'm, I mean, they're my nieces. So I so said, they don't think of me <laughs> as, you know, are, you know, they are, their grandparents are not my age. They're a generation ahead of me, but um, I have been asked the question, like, are you a grandma? And, yeah. and, and factually, a couple of generations ago, to be 45, like you could, you know, women went directly, whether they went to college or whether they went to, but they, they started having, you know, children at, at, in their early 20s. Yeah. You your grandma at 45. Fair. Now, now you're pregnant at 49, but it's, but, you know, um, it actually came from, uh, I get asked this question all the time. It came from when I was probably in my, I was probably in my early thirties, maybe late twenties, but I had a bunch of friends, you know, it was, it was sort of publicists and it was New York and it was the, it wasn't the nineties, it was the two thousands, but we all, this is a time when, you know, brands had parties and would anybody oh get at parties, which we, which now feels like it was, you know, 500 years ago that, you know, the idea of standing in an, a room of unmasked strangers, oh my God. Like, you know, and like, taking with an ungloved hand, like taking things off of a tray and sticking them in your mouth oh my God. Um, yeah. is, I mean, it's, it sounds like, like the wizard of Oz or something. <laughs> it's like a totally other, other dimension. Um, but I had a friend, um, and I said, Oh God, you know, I feel like a grandma. And he said, but you're fierce girl, you're fierce. And so we just came up with the, with the moniker fierce grandma. And the, 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 the coda to this is, I used it as my Twitter handle when I signed up for Twitter. What the hell is Twitter? This must have been 2000. Oh, I don't even know what year. Oh my God. Um, 2000, 2009 or 2010. And I remember my sister had actually said, oh yeah, there's this thing called Twitter. Because you know, she was working in Silicon Valley and she was a pretty early adopter to Twitter. And she said, oh yeah, there's, there's this thing called Twitter and you can communicate with your friends in 140 character messages. And I was like, <laughs> wait, explain that to me again. That sounds like the stupidest right. thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Who would join that? Who would do that? And but I signed up and I was like, I'll sign up for Twitter. I was like, but I would never want to use my real name. Right. So I'll use this, this handle that like only the people who know, like the people who know, know, and the people who don't, like I, I've got some cover. And then of course, social media is like the way that we can, like we use it. We don't use the phone really. We don't use, we don't need to use email. We DM each other. We DM strangers, celebrities DM each other. I mean, to click yeah. on dates. I mean, it's so normal to not have any other information about someone other than, you know, access to their social channels. So, but it stuck. And at that point I was like, well, I'm not going to change it now. So that's your <laughs> grandma. And, and there are people, and as I'm sure you have in your life as well, people that you only, you address them as their, as their social handle. You know, it's you know, my, my friend, my friend, Phil, who, and his handle is Pip the Rip. And I actually, for a long time, didn't know his name was Phil. I was like, oh, Pip. I was like, stop it right <laughs> now. You know? So he calls me to Instagram. I call him Pip. It's just the way it goes. That is you never wild. Know what that is yeah. wild. It's so funny just going through your Instagram. Like I did kind of like come through. I know. And I love all your research. You're like an old school. You're like, I mean, you're like giving Robin Gavana a run for her money. Like I'm um, sign, sign you sign you up for the podcast Pulitzer. You know, you know, Robin is in the neighborhood and I am yeah, a right. big fan of her writing. And I did read that article she wrote about you in 2011, which I loved. Um, but, you know, I too went to predominantly white school, private school, like 
I was the only black person who like graduated from my high school class. So your experience sort of finding your way and, you know, in the Robin um, Gibbon article, you did sort of mention, you know, the role that sort of clothes and presenting yourself and, you know, sort of navigating identity through clothes and, and just race and class. Um, that was something that I sort of also looked to throughout my life to, you know, whether it was like, okay, these are all really wealthy white people. I'm like a middle class black girl in a Mexican neighborhood. <laughs> right, right. How do I fit into this narrative? Like, you know, there's all of these stereotypes and and misconceptions about me. How can I be successful in this life? Right. What do I need to do? How do I present myself? So it's, it's, I saw a lot of parallels there. Uh, well, in particularly, pr- particularly when, you know, I think we, it, it, it does really astonish me um, in a good way. Um, I mean, I, I'll back up. I think, you know, one of the really interesting things about this moment that I have, that I've spent a lot of time thinking about and a lot of time talking about is this kind of dyad of, the things that you just accepted that um, it didn't occur to you to ask or to think that they were racist um, or, you know, informed by some sort of prejudice. Um, And then, you know, the things that, you know, as we see with, with, you know, this, this gen, you know, millennials and, and, and particularly gen, gen Z, are so upfront about everything. So it's not, you know, the idea of, well, don't say, you know, I think it's much more, much more, I, I won't speak for you, but I'll certain, but I think you will probably be able to relate of, um, you know what, don't say anything. Don't make a big deal out of it. Don't call attention to yourself. Nobody wants to hear it. Nobody wants to. And I think that that was, and that's not just around race. I think it's also around, um, that was, I was just speaking to someone um, sort of in a, in a professional conversation, which is that and like you said, you know, I'm behind the scenes, but you know, when we were coming up and when I was working at Condé Nast in the nineties, the late, the late, late nineties, it was, I mean, the, the doctrine was very much, I don't care what you look like. You are to be seen and not heard. Get, I said, mustard, not ketchup. You bring the mustard. It's like I said, brown mustard, not yellow mustard. I mean, right. it was, I mean, the, <laughs> the, the, the rigors of the, the hazing, you know, almost. Yeah. And it's like, and sometimes you were hazed and sometimes you were abused and sometimes it was character building and sometimes it was just eat shit, you know what I mean? And, and, and uh, yeah, it really was. Sorry for swearing, yeah. but um, I didn't no, ask you if I could swear. <laughs> but I, um, so I think that, you know, we have a, a you know, my, I know that my generation, you know, we talked to, you know, Carla Martinez is, is a friend of mine, the editor of, of Vogue Mexico and Latin America. And, you know, we t- have talked about the experiences of being not white. She, you know, worked at, she worked at every magazine. She worked at Vogue, she worked at Elle, she worked at W, she worked at, I mean, Carla has an, imp- an impressive resume. Carla is, Carla's here to stay. I mean, she's, she's amazing. And, but we talked about it and she said, you know, and her father, her father was, you know, a physician. Um, she grew up in El Paso and, um, she's very, very in touch with her, with her Mexican heritage. Um, you know, as a Mexican American woman, um, she now, she now lives in Mexico city. And we said, you know, I guess there were things that, that, maybe disqualified us or made us have to work or that we knew that, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be the logical choices for, but we had families that said anything your boss asks you to do is your job. 
So don't bother yourself with what, you know, the hows and the whys. Don't go to HR. Don't go to, like, we just didn't, I'm not criticizing. I mean, I think there are some, I think there are some things that we can learn. I think that we can do a better job of teaching people what was sort of what is, what's, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. I think that that's, uh, you know, I think, and I think that that's not just, that's not just the, the obligation of us as, as, as black women. I think it's, I think, corporate America can do a better yeah. job at it. Cause I've led teams, white teams where it's like people were going to HR all the time. And it's like, this is not right. And, and HR also yeah. wasn't, wasn't saying, okay, when we have this many complaints from this department, yeah. what's going on here? Like we've got, we've got to, we've got to break this down and see what's really going on here and where the problem is. And we've got yeah. to figure out how to address it. So I think I, you know, I think we have a long way to go in, in terms of some of those things, but you know, it's a, I know that it's a very different, I come from a very different persuasion and, and to, and like you were saying to, you know, whiteness was the norm. I mean, and I think, you know, coming out, you know, that was coming out of sort of yuppies and, and Reaganomics and, you know, this idea of, you know, you know, Ralph Lauren was, was a scent was, you know, very much, there were very few fashion houses. They were, you know, that Ralph Lauren was dominant, that idea of the polo pony and that, yeah. and that lifestyle. I mean, <laughs> totally, totally. And there was no internet. So like, People would murmur that he was, you know, this this Jewish guy from the Bronx who was yeah. on ties at Bloomingdale's, but like not, but but to look at it, you know, he was it was like the houses in Bedford and the houses in, you know, it was this idea of, you know, um, so I think it's really different. And I think that what we also realize now is that there are certain, you know, what what is I don't want to say acceptable because it was never not acceptable, but what is what you can bring into these corp what what does not disqualify you from certain types of corporate spaces partially because i think we've had to litigate some of this stuff yeah. um like your hairstyle or like your gender oh what bathroom you use all of those things some of that stuff has had to be lit- litigated but yeah. you know the the concepts around the attitudes that we have around body type positivity around you know uh, around disclosing you know what was considered too personal and, you know, and, and, and just one's presentation are leaps and bounds from where they were when, when, you know, when you and, well, certainly when I was coming up where it was like, this is, this is how you dress. This is how you, like, you never step over the line. So it's, so it's a lot of, so there, you know, there's a, there's a lot of change that I think is if you've only, if you've only been exposed to this way, it's, it's hard to imagine that it used to be different. I'm like, people are actually getting paid now. I remember when internships, <laughs> right? <laughs> you work for free, and right. I was like, like, "But I'm from California. How am I going to intern?" <laughs> right, and they're like, "That's um, get to to have people work for no money is against yeah. the law." Right? No, it's it's to- it's totally it's different. It's wild. And it's totally different, and I think you know that idea too. And this is you know some of the work that um you know that I've you know been interested in in or some of the the, the concepts that I've been interested in, in talking about, which is that how do we look, if you want to work for free and if you're able to work for free, that's great. And I've done it. I did it. Yeah, I wouldn't do it same now. Here. <laughs> but what does, but I think that it is, for, it's not intuitive for everybody that that is going to, uh, that is going to put forward for, for candidacy, a, yeah. usually a certain type of person. Um, yeah. with a certain type of background. And I think that those are the conversations that we're starting to have, which are no shade to anybody. No. It's just, do we want to change that? And if we, if we want to change that, if we want more mm-hmm. diverse 
diversity, if we want different opinions, if we want, you know, if we want to, to really um, leverage sort of the hybrid vigor of all different types of people and all different types of input, then what do we have to do to make that change? Because it's not going to happen on its own. Because money makes the world, because money makes the world go around. It really does. I mean, this it's, is a capitalist society. It absolutely is. That's, it's so funny that you say that because that is that that is has been sort of the crux of about ten conversations that I've had that week this week. That's like where it always, you know, we we're still talking about race, we're still talking about equality, yeah. we're still talking about it, but what everyone always says is money makes the world go around. Absolutely. I have an old copy of the Wealth of Nations that, you know, I crack open every once in a while just to remind myself of how it all works. Totally. <laughs> totally. So you went, speaking of Wealth of Nations, you went to Brown University. I did. Providence, Rhode Island. How about that? I tell, you know, it's really funny. I actually did in graduate school, one of my courses, I did a presentation on Black women in fashion and you were on the slide and I educated the class, you know, you, Tracy, you know, Andre, you know, the usual suspects were up there. And afterwards, they were like, oh, my God, we had no idea that, you know, these types of people were working in the industry. And I'm like, yeah, like, there's some pretty smart, you know, brilliant, intelligent people from different backgrounds who work in the industry. So I'm curious, you know, what did you study? I know what you studied, but for our listeners, what did you study and major in? And then how did that help you throughout your career? I studied, uh, Brown has a, has a, a concentration, so they call them there, uh, mo- modern culture and media and American civilization. And it's, um, you know, Brown's a little, you know, you can, there's no, there's no course requirements or there's, there's credit requirements, there's, uh, yeah graduation requirements, like a number of credits, but, or units and concentration requirements. So you have to have certain classes in certain, um, but it's not like Columbia or places that have a core curriculum where, you know, you Mm -hmm. read great books or you read, which I think, um, which I think is great for a certain type of student who really knows what they want to do. Um, and I guess I did know what I wanted to do, which is work in fashion, which you actually don't need to go to college for. And that may sound controversial. And um, you know, I think, and this is something that, that I am, that I, some, some ideas that I'm sort of, and, and I'll, I'll get to the rest of your question in a second, but I, I don't want to forget this. These are, uh, things that I'm, that I have been kind of not pushing. Cause it's not like I have a, you know, a, a, a real, you know, platform for it yet, but conversations that I've been having with people that I admire and, and, and respect and who are looking at, at, at these conversations and, 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 and how to, and how do we change? Um, how do we change opportunity? How do we change the future of work? Um, and, and, you know, the pipeline and all those things. Cause it's, we talk a lot about the pipeline, but you know, what's the pipeline within and within these organizations. And we have to talk about retention because it's exactly what you're saying. Um, what I'm hearing you say, when you say, we didn't know that there were people like this working in these jobs and we didn't know that this is what they look like. And this is what their background was. And this is what they had the ability to do. I hear so much from, um, you know, as a lot of this stuff is emerged and as I've started talking about it, you know, via, via social, um, people say young black women, mostly I loved fashion. I really wanted to do it. And I, I, I labored in it for a couple of years and then I just felt like I couldn't hack it. And, or I, I did, you know, I wasn't getting the promotions. I wasn't getting the mentorship. I didn't, I didn't know, you know, I didn't, I didn't have the tools and I didn't know how to, I didn't know how to, how to, how to access them. And, you know, 
we all have a responsibility to figure out how to get what we need and then to ask for it, not demand it, ask yeah. for it. And to find, and you know, the people who are going to help navigate you to those things don't have to be anything. They don't have to be the same gender. They don't have to be the same color. They don't have to be the same social, socioeconomic class. They don't have to be any of those things. They have to be people, hopefully they're people who are invested in, um, if they're managers, hopefully they're people who are invested in being lights for other people. Yeah. I always used to say, you know, when I, when I worked at coach, I, I had the, probably the biggest team I've ever led. And I said to them, I wasn't intimidated by them. I knew, yeah, I reviewed them. I knew how much money they made. I knew, you know, I kind of, and they, and most of them were about 10 to 15 years younger than I was. So I wasn't, I, I didn't, it wasn't going to, it wasn't going to be an all about you situation where someone who was, you know, who was 27 in her first job was going to somehow eclipse me as an executive at the company. Right, right, right. But I would yeah. always say to them, you, it's my, you know, you give me your best work and I will give you access to anything that I know to help you in your next, in your next job. And that job might be here, but it might be somewhere else. So you're a dream boss. You're a dream boss. (laughs) That's the deal that we're going to make. Thank you. But it's also, but how did I learn that? Because I had so many nightmare bosses. (laughs) That's the truth. But, you know, but I think that you know, and, and, but not everyone does that. And sometimes, you know, people, and I think we have to start looking at, are we promoting people who have the ability to be managers? Because you could, you know, it's, you know, like the brilliant asshole that they talk about in Silicon Valley all the time. That person may have, you know, there's space there's, and I think to what you said about being a capitalist society, what ends up happening is we think that everyone thinks you got to keep moving to the top of the pyramid to excel. And that means being the boss. That means being the boss and not having a boss ultimately. And that, and that becomes the most important person. That's the person who makes the most money. That's the person who gets the biggest bonus, et cetera, et cetera. But not everybody has those skills. You need someone who is, who is good at a lot of different things. You know, we don't just pick people because they have, you know, because they, you know, have the ability to, because they're the biggest earners or they're the biggest, they have, they have to be able to lead an organization. And this is one of the biggest things that we're seeing as we talk about, you know, DE&I, and we're talking about, you know, the, the, the liability that companies have exposed themselves to with people who aren't, who don't, who don't want to embrace the manifesto of how work looks and how it feels and who is contributing. So I think, you know, these are really important. These are, these are conversations that have been pushed to the forefront. I think it started a bit with me too, but I think it, I think it can go farther and I think it will, I think it has to. So I think, so to go back to the thing about school, um, you know, I think, so I knew what I wanted to study. I couldn't wait to get out of school because I knew I wanted to go work at a fashion magazine, which interestingly is not what I do now, but, um, but I have done it in my life. And I think, but you know, something else that I, that I am hoping that, that can be part of this conversation is especially given college was expensive when I went even more (laughs) expensive now. And I think, you know, the ways in which Brown is a great education. I met, you know, I don't remember all the things that I studied because I'm now almost 25 years out. Um, I made some great relationships. I, you know, I, I, and I don't, I don't, I don't see anybody right now, but, um, you know, my, my college, you know, my two college roommates are dear friends and I've seen their kids grow up and I've, you know, become friends with their families and, you know, their, their, their birth families. And, and, you know, my friend Hunter, I'm friends with his sister and I watch <laughs> her kids who both just entered college. I mean, it's, you know, that was wonderful. Wow. And, and, you know, I think about, you know, it's nine 11 and I think about the person that I, you know, walked, walked home with from the Condé Nast building, who's one of my friends from Brown. You know, she, she worked at Vanity Fair. I worked at Mademoiselle, um, the daily department at Mademoiselle at the time. So, you know, the, the, 
college is a great place for connections. Um, and, you know, if you go to a you know, fancy college, you have fancy connections. But I yeah. think, <laughs> but I, but I think that we also can be, particularly in these, you know, in, in, in spheres like fashion where we love a brand name, I think they can, those things can be distracting. And I hmm. think that they can be, you know, and, and again, I've had a wonderful, I had, I had a top notch education from the age of five to the age of 22. But, you know, do we start thinking about um, something that may sound controversial, but, you know, for college, obviously there, you know, for, for non-technical jobs, do we start looking at, you know, more vocational study? Do we start looking at uh, people with associate's degrees? Um, I don't think that there is anything, particularly for non-technical jobs, as I said, there isn't, and look, there are people, you know, journalists, you know, people who, who, who study journalism. I mean, that is something that I, that I very much revere and respect. And there's a big difference between someone who does their research and knows the difference between fact, you know, fact and opinion, never, never so important as it is now, but, you know, to, uh, to, um, you know, sort clothes in a fashion closet, I don't know if you need that. And I don't know. And if, and if, are we putting out the message that, you know, for you to be able to pursue the job of your dreams, you have to go to a certain type of school, um, which maybe even if you're able to get into that school, you might not be able to pay for it. Or you might not even be able to, it might be taxing to your family to, to transport you there. Or you may have relatives who need, you know, someone, there may be a reason that you stay close to home that had, that don't even have to do with finances, but you know, what we, but you know, people, when, you know, to be wealthy means to have a lot of options. To not be wealthy means to have fewer options. But how are we, and, and that's just a fact of life, but how is that affecting the workplace? Because it shouldn't affect the workplace in perpetuity. So I, you know, my, what, I have, what I have sort of advocated, um, you know, not on a grand scale is what if we took people's, what if, what if we posted jobs as this is a job for a college graduate this is not a job for a college graduate, or this is a, 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 a job for someone with, with an associate's degree. This is a job for someone with a bachelor's. This is some, a job for someone with a master's. Um, and what if you took off of your resume where you went to school? So two applicants come in. One went to a, went, one went to a state school. Um, and there's some wonderful state schools. I mean, oh, you know, I, I, of yeah. course I'm from, I'm from San Francisco. I mean, university, you know, the, the UC system, go, go bears. Absolutely. Go, Colton, Cal California. Bears. That's where I'm from. But, <laughs> but someone who went to, but not everybody knows that. Yeah. And so, someone who went to, um, you know, is someone from fashion going to look at to, you know, someone who went to UNC differently than the person who went to Duke. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's should change. It's something worth considering because if we can't, because not everyone is able to or has been persuaded to um, let go of some of those biases. I dated a guy who went to Harvard basically because he went to Harvard, and I thought my parents would be like, "Oh, Bonnie's finally figured it out." Yeah, he didn't like me. He didn't like me that much. He didn't like me that much. And, he, and and the, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. Had a, um, had a couple of those in my day. <laughs> but, you know, but do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he was, you know, and I thought, well, this is, and that was my own, you know, debility. But I think that I, but I, but that was more, it was like, oh, well, he ticks this box. And he certainly talked about it. And I certainly told other people about it. I also, you know, was in love with someone who went to a really great college too. And that was never something that we talked about. So it's just... But it wasn't, um, 
and I think that the, and, and looking back on it, the person who didn't mention that, or it, it wasn't part of our relationship or it's something that I found out afterwards, that was definitely a better guy. So I, you know, I think we can get in our own way thinking that the seal that someone living up to, and I think it goes down to what you were talking about, you know, as, as yourself, you know, growing up as how much does, how much does someone else's approval mean to us and how, and, and can that, and, and if it's inspiring us to grow and to reach our potential, great. But sometimes it just oppresses us. Yeah. And if it's oppressing us, we need to get out from under it ASAP. Ah, hallelujah. So funny that we're talking about this. I mean, I'm 35. And Go baby. Oh, Go baby. Stop it. Well, I mean, I'm, you look 25, Bonnie. Let's just be real. But it doesn't crack. It doesn't crack. No, it doesn't. Um, <laughs> so I literally, literally just came to that, you know. I love me for me. Like I may not yeah. have gone to Harvard. I mean, I went to Howard, but there's this whole thing. Like, I mean, I had never been around so many black people before in my life. And <laughs> I was like, wait, Jack and Jill went up the hill. Like I didn't know about right, these organizations right. and divine nine. And, you know, it was just like this new level of like, Oh my God, you're from Sweden. And like, I'm from California. You know, I had this, valley girl accent and they were like is right. she smart like right you know, it was a legally blonde situation like so there was always this constant like can I be accepted are you gonna accept me are you gonna accept me totally went to fashion did really well for about five years and then hit kept hitting a wall couldn't move up couldn't move yeah. up and I was like yeah. what's happening yeah. had a meltdown went to grad school to think about it and it was just like acceptance, love, self-love, where is it? I literally, like, probably within the past year, it finally clicked, like, after years and years and years of therapy. And I was like, you know what? I love fashion. It will never go away. You know, so I write and I do things. But, you know, it's like, I'm a Black girl from Colton, California, who some think, you know, sounds like a white girl, but this is how I speak. This is how I talk. I'm from California, you know, right. and that's right. okay. And it's okay. great, you know? So what you're saying, just embracing yourself and, and, and having the, the bravery even because I probably in the nineties, there are probably certain parts of yourself that, you know, maybe you felt you had to sort oh. of, Oh yeah. And I, censor, think, um, you know, well, I mean, first, I mean, the first thing that I'll say is that I think, you know, this is, this is speaking from the perspective of someone who's 10 years older, but, um, I think 30 is kind of your first adult age where wow. you're not making, at least this, this was the case for me where it wasn't like, Oh my, you know, where you get to your birthday party and people are like, <laughs> what do you wish for? And you're like, not to be as much of a jerk as I was for the last <laughs> year. You know, you weren't like, covering your face thinking I do it all differently. You know, if, if I could just, you know, if I could turn back time, but 30 is like, you know, some, some of the adult stuff really does. It's some of the stuff that you, that you ideate and you persevere on. And some of this stuff is stuff that you, that happens to you. You know, you, you know, you've been through, you maybe had your heart, you, you maybe fall in love or had your heart broken. Both are very transformative experiences. You've, you know, you've seen some loss probably maybe of peers even, um, you know, things that are really catacly, you, you, you know, I think usually for most people around 27, 28, it's where this has been, this is my experience and also my observation where people are getting, if they've been kind of in the same job or same career, if they've just come up, come back out of, you know, of, of a, of a graduate degree, 
um, they're starting to, it's, you know, you're not at the, 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 the absolute lowest rung of the totem pole where you're, where you're just, where it's just like every single thing is just like having the balls thrown at you and just trying to, um, but you, you know, you maybe are managing someone, you're, you know, your work, you know, you're, you're getting dealt in on, on more interesting projects. And, you know, usually around that age too, you, it's a lot of open road, but you can't, um, but you know, you're still, um, buffered enough by, you know, enough sort of organizational structure that you can't make huge mistakes. So you've got just right. enough, you've got just enough, um, <laughs> just enough responsibility. And usually that's also the point where like you've doubled your salary. You will not yeah. continue to double your salary through your, you know, you were making $25,000. Now you're making $50,000, but you're not going <laughs> to, you know, that's not going to happen every two years where, until you, you know, it's infinite growth. And I think 35 is this really, I think, you know, also for women, you know, it's always been talked about as sort of a reproductive milestone. It's, you know, and you're sort of dead in the middle between 30 and 40 and 40s are great too. But I think that it, that is really a time where you can, because you haven't had to be dealing with all of the changes in your twenties. You get out of your twenties, at least I got out of my twenties and it's like, why do people say that the twenties are so great? Right. So, so you can, you know, so you've got, so everything that you've done, you, no matter how slowly you've worked, you know, from the age of 30 to 35, they're all kind of building blocks pointing in the right direction. Cause you, you're not, you're not testing so much of it out. So that's, but, but it is, and you kind of learn that self-acceptance and, and you're able to implement it. But, you know, I do, I think you raise such an important point. And I think it's something that I do see this younger generation starting to change because of the things that we were talking about before which is, you know, I, and uh, I think I've had to, to look at, um, the ways in which, you know, when I worked at, when I worked at Connie Nast, for example, um, you know, and now, I mean, now not be, if this were a normal year, um, you would see me in, you know, I basically have it, you know, boiled down to a uniform, you know, I would sort of wear trousers and usually a sweatshirt or a cashmere sweater, sneakers, if I can get away with it, flats, if it's, if it's a, you know, if it's a little bit more of a formal, uh, you know, formal work meeting. Um, but, you know, I don't, you know, the, all of the stuff that I used to do, and I still love fashion. I, you know, I've, I, I still, I love it. But, you know, that thing of like needing to, how do I fit in? How do I distinguish myself? How do I, you know, that, that really like hard charging, full contact participation in the system to show that I belonged. And I don't think I would have described, I didn't have the, I didn't have the, the perspective or the, the self-awareness to be able to describe it that way at the time, but that's really what it was. And it was like, you know, I, as, as I've talked about, you know, my experience working at Men's Vogue, it was, I have to own and I think that this is a really good experience for anyone. I have to own, you know, was there a certain standard? Was it, you know, was it a, a, a you know, an embrace of whiteness? Was it an embrace of, of, of you know, a, a sort of a classist perspective and all of these other things that I now feel comfortable rejecting or, or saying, wait a second, that's not cool. Um, I have to own, and I think that this is, as I said, I think it's a really good ex experience. I have to own what my participation in it was because I, I didn't, you know, no one told me I, I wanted it, it. I wanted it to validate me. I thought that it was important and I thought that it was the way, and no matter what it asked of me, even if it made me miserable, even if I didn't believe in it, even if I saw, you know, it's like, well, I'm getting treated well now. And that person isn't getting treated that well, but you know what? Not my problem. I'm yep, yep. to keep drilling ahead. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
you know, that it's like, you know, we, you know, we got to lose the underperformers and you know, how, yeah. how it forced me to kind of make certain pivots in terms of my own behavior or my own values sounds very, I mean, I, there wasn't anything really dramatic that happened, but it was like, you know, you become this machine where it's like, no, you've got to succeed. You've got to succeed. Yeah. You've got to succeed. Um, rather than, is this really making me happy? Is this contributing to, is this permitting me to contribute to the best of myself? Um, and the best of other people. And I can't say, and I won't say that that was Anna's fault or that that was anyone else's fault because I showed up every day and I said, if I keep doing this, it's going to lead to that. And that was my, that was my own decision. And that was like, are there things that happened in, in, in my job at any job that I have where it's like, oh, well, you know, that wasn't, I, that wasn't cool for me to be asked that or asked to do that. Or, you know, the way that that other person got treated, that wasn't cool. Perhaps not, no, definitely <laughs> right. not. But at the other, you know, we have to, we have to take, we have to take responsibility and we have to always sort of be in our own, maintain that own internal dialogue yeah. with what is this? Is this really important? Is this worth it? Is this Absolutely. worth it? Nobody's going to do it. Nobody's going to do it for you. You sell your labor. And yeah. As, and, and that's the trans and, and that's the, you know, that's the point of contact with your employer and that's what they see and that's what they care, care about. And they say, we're paying you. This is the contract that you signed with us, even though it's, if it's not an official contract and what's the problem, that's how they're going to say. Yeah. I, I totally like that makes so much sense. And just that responsibility piece, I think is so important. And, you know, as you're, uh, speaking, I just thought back, you know, during like the early days of my career and just how I was just like, okay, I'm here. I need to make it. So I'm going to internalize those thoughts and beliefs so that I can stay here. Like there's just this fear, I think that was sort of looming, like, oh my God, like, I don't want to lose this opportunity. Like my parents already think like, what in the world is she doing (laughs) with her life? Some costs, right? You're going to end up poor. Right. Poor and sad. But but I think luckily we are changing that idea. And I think, you know, with the conversations around mental health, I mean, all of these things, I mean, the the internet has been horrible for a lot of things. But as I mentioned before, (laughs) I think the internet, one of the things, you know, we have been, I'm, you know, obviously it came at a terrible, terrible, terrible price, but these, you know, only the most high profile, uh, deaths that we've, that we've really talked about this year, which is, which is George Floyd and, and Breonna Taylor, I think, although there are many others, but I would say yeah. that those are the ones that have really yeah. been at the for- forefront and they've stayed, they've stayed, they've maintained kind of their, their primacy. Um, I think, we have been able to, and this wasn't by design, but I think to almost approach the conversations about race and about empowerment, personal empowerment, gender empowerment, racial, all of those things, um, in the ways that we have, that, that, that we've, you know, we've been lapped by sort of the mental health, I don't want to say industrial complex, but the mental, sort of the mental health, um, conversation where people say, we are, we are shining a light on mental health. We're talking about how important it is for some people. It's medication for some people. It's therapy. It's, you know, uh, CBT for some people, you know, we talk about talk space and we talk about, you know, there are all these apps and there are all these. And I think, um, 
you know, in meditation, we talk about, um, you know, the important of talking, the important of... Wait, I do all of these, Bonnie. Hold on a second. (laughs) (laughs) Totally. But, you know, telling people what's going on with us. And I think that lifting the veil on those things, I think has been, it has been tremendously helpful. And even, and in so doing, we've even been able to change our language about, about mental health, mental illness, mental health, wellness, um, you know, the important of balance, the important of, um, and I think that we, we would do well to, to sort of take that approach to others. And, and also, because this is the other thing about, you know, about that, that particular crusade, um, it's not, it's come out of the shadows and it hasn't just been for people with, you know, bipolar disorder or for people with uh, depression or with people with, this is your thing to deal with. This is your thing to deal with. Discuss it with your clinician, discuss it with whatever protocols that you, but don't ever bring this into your workspace. Don't ever bring this into, and obviously, you know, there's, there's, there's a, there, there, people have to, to, to negotiate a way that feels comfortable for them and doesn't, you know, and doesn't impede or can't be used against them. But, and I think that's, that's, it's the same for really almost anything, any sort of point of difference. But I think that we have, uh, to, to actually talk about these things and to actually bring them and to not say, well, I'm just gonna, you know, um, I'm just going to grin and bear it, or this isn't, or nobody else cares about this or that idea of like, who are you? Yeah. Because it's so abusive, that (laughs) idea of like, it's like, I mean, talk about like dating, you know, dating inappropriate people. It's like, well, this is a great, this is a great person who has like this, that, and the other thing on their resume. They're great on paper. Who are you? You're dying inside, but who are you to break up with them? I mean, that's that's insane. If you had a friend who came to you and was like, well, you know, I, you know, like there, there's a litany of bad things about this person, but you know, who am I to, you know, like who am I to to break up with him? And you'd be like, that's doesn't sound right. It's crazy. Yeah. And I think we need to, I think we maybe need to inform some of our, you know, professional development with a little bit of that, a little touch of that attitude. That's such a fun way to think about it. I've never thought of it from that perspective. Right. That's amazing. Well, I'm going to lighten it up a little bit, just a little bit. Okay. I'm ready. I'm going to ask you really quickly, what is on the minds of all the fashion folks out there? How in the world do you get an invitation for a KCD event? Go. (laughs) I don't don't know that, you know what? I don't know if there are so many, I don't know if there's so many events anymore. I think it's going to, we're going to see something really, we're going to see some really interesting, we're going to see some really interesting changes, right? On, um, you know, in the the future and even, you know, starting with the resort shows and everything this summer, I thought it was really interesting, like what J.W. Anderson did of kind of his, you know, paper dolls and. um, I wanted those. I was like, Robin, I I saw it on Robin's Instagram and I was so jealous. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, also, I have to say, having worked in PR for as long as I did or have or wh- whatever, I, whatever it is that I do now, um, I <laughs> like the and, and I know from friends who do, um, you know, who, who do who are on sort of, you know, press, you know, gifting mailing lists or whatever. Mm-hmm. Dealing with all of that mess during COVID when people are like, because I had friends who were like, I don't want anyone walking up to my house with a box. Right. Like, I don't, you know what I mean? Like it's filled with germs. And I mean, it was to coordinate that and people not being at home and people yeah. and, you know, places where it's like a PO box. So you can't FedEx. And I mean, oh I God. cannot, I mean, the poor, 
they probably weren't interns. They were probably, you know, especially with staff furloughed, it was, you probably had, you know, a manager or coordinator who's doing the job <laughs> with 10 people. Yes. So like, now I'm the janitor and now I'm the post, you know, the office manager. And now I'm in a- So, um, I think that it's going to be an interesting look, you know, fashion, uh, you know, every, we've all dealt with a reckoning, um, and fashion is, uh, and fashion is certainly not immune to it, but I think that when we are, um, uh, it's changed, it's changed our, you know, COVID has changed our ability to consume. It's not just the things that we want. I, there are still people who want to wear high heels. I, I didn't before. So I, I didn't before. So I, yeah. so that doesn't apply to me. And I still, you know, I still love fashion. I've, I've bought a couple of things uh, during COVID, especially spending all of, you know, oh your, your screen time is like 12, 13 hours a day. So some, yeah. of, that's, some of that's online <laughs> shopping, some of that's e-com, but, um, you know, I think that, um, how we present these things and people, you know, uh, it will be, you know, none of these re we've seen some rebounds in sectors like, you know, food service and things like that, where people where depending on regulations, people have been able to, you know, or, or, you know, gymnasiums or people have been able to go back. And so the people who were, were unemployed, you know, six months or, you know, immediately after, you know, uh, as a result of closures, didn't have work and, and now some of them are back, but it's going to take a while. So I think fashion, I think how we present, and I think that fashion designers have had to be kind like, you know, Tom Ford was saying the other day, I furloughed a bunch of people. Like I can't have, you know, some run with some splashy, especially, you know, for something that is so, um, you know, the production values on a, on a, a Tom Ford, um, you know, a Tom Ford run runway show. That's not a criticism. And, and yeah. also in the work, in no, the work it's gorgeous. And in the work that I'm doing with the CFDA, effectively, Tom Ford is my boss. So I, yeah, you know, absolutely. I'm not, I'm not hey, Tom. I, I think, <laughs> hey, Tom. I think that that was an appropriate decision, but yeah. I think that, you know, it's going to be really interesting. What I, where I think it's great, though, is that, you know, we can use this as, as we've seen at other times in history. We can, you know, the, the ingenuity and, the, and also the ability, I think, you know, does it create opportunity for people who haven't necessarily been able to compete, um, not, not in terms of talent, but in terms of resources. So it's like, if everybody's now indoors and we're not doing parties where, you know, or big splashy, you know, launches or where we're doing things, then, then hopefully the cream rises to the top in terms of talent, but also hopefully, you know, people will really be forced to look back into their own, you know, wellsprings of, of, of innovation and creativity um, so that they can distinguish themselves and perhaps really, you know, grow. And I think that that is um, because as everyone said, you know, whether we like it or not really, because, because I have gone back to the gym this week and there aren't a lot of people there. I think that there are people, and I look at my parents who are in their seventies and, um, they're safer at home. So yeah. I think for, they really, they, you know, they would never, my parents would never admit that they're old. Hi guys. Um, <laughs> they would never admit that they're old, but, um, they, um, and, and, you know, and they're, they're in wonderful health and, and for that, I'm really grateful. But I think that, you know, the idea of it's not, people don't really feel like it's safe to come out yet. And I, and I respect that. And I think that that is, and I actually, you know, really, it, it's been hard. It's certainly been hard for people with kids. It's been hard for, you know, it's there for, for some of us, it's been a much greater adjustment than others. And I think that, um, 
you know, the people who are still really staying the course, you know, for their safety and for the safety of other people and not really complaining about it. I think that's not a very American way, is it? Yeah. But I think it's, you know, you, 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 you talk to people who, you know, grew up in, in post-war Europe and they're like, we're used to that. Right. I mean, not, not that, not that this isn't unprecedented for anybody, but yeah. so, you know, as Americans, you know, we want our big cars and our big airplane seats and our big, you know, and, and, you know, like, where's mine, where's mine, where's mine, you know, we'll buy it on credit. And I think that this has been a real shift, one that I hope we can learn from, um, for American, you know, for American life. So I think fashion shows, maybe outdoor ones, um, you know, maybe we're looking for, but I think that that, that whole model, I think because of even before, even before COVID that whole model of PR agencies, uh, runway presentations, the frequency of, of, you know, eight collections, you know, eight collections a year, um, of, you know, participating in every, you know, opening, you know, massive stores, uh, like all of that. I I don't have many predictions on what it will look like, but it's going to be different. It's going to be really, really different. So, and hopefully the opportunity, you know, those, but you know, what, what we've been talking about, um, what I've been talking about people is, I think the other benefit of it is, for people who have felt like they couldn't, they couldn't participate because they didn't live in New York or because they didn't, or because it was only this sort of the, the, the tippy top of editors or influencers or, or customers. Um, does this give us, does this give them the opportunity to participate and to dream and to be inspired um, in ways that will bear fruit for them down the, down the road? I think that instead of looking at, um, mourning what we've lost perhaps forever i don't really know what forever ever means but mourning what we've lost it's like what is this or is this is this an opportunity to reach new and different audiences because companies to stay competitive i think the other beautiful thing about talking about diversity is that they you know we can now really honor and reflect on how the participation and also the capital of so many different kinds of communities is what's going to make these companies drive these companies forward. It's not just, you know, if you, even, even brands that are associated, like we talk about a Ralph or a Tory or things that we think have a particular, oh, well, that's a white girl brand or that's a streetwear brand or that's yeah. a, it's all, it's all wrapped up together and everybody wants all of those customers. It's so beautiful. It's really beautiful to see. I mean, I was just looking through the September issues, like what is going on? Never. I mean, honestly, Bonnie, would you ever in your life like think that this would be happening right now and brand saying black lives matter, like publicly and like in their branding, like, isn't this insane? (laughs) No, no way. And it's really funny because I can't now can't remember. It might've been 2000. There was a, there was a gap kids commercial. And it was, I think it was a holiday commercial and it was a, it was this girl band. They're very cool. And I think it was like for, it was, I forget what it was for, maybe chords or something like that. And they had, um, uh, and it was, there were, I mean, they must've been like 10 years old and the lead singer was the, was, they sang, you really got me. And the lead singer was this black girl with sort of natural hair. And she like had great moves and like swivel hips. And, uh, and I remember thinking, and I must've been in my twenties at that point. I looked at it, it's on YouTube. I'll send it to you. Um, and I remember, I mean, I it put a lump in my throat. I was like, if I had seen that when I was a girl, if I had seen that you'd have this 
massive company. I'm from San Francisco, so obviously the gap was huge then. Yeah. Um, we, everybody in the world, everybody in San Francisco in, who grew up in, who's born in the seventies worked at a gap. We didn't have old Navy then, but you worked at banana or you worked at gap. You like would go home and you folded sweaters in the summer, I love uh, that. sweaters and t-shirts. But I remember seeing that and thinking like, I ne- like that, what that, what, like what that would have meant to me to see a, like this black girl with natural hair front and center on the, she's probably biracial, but, um, but you know, uh, black to everybody else and, yeah. um, and biracial is black. I mean, it's, um, yes. I'm, no shade there, but hey, Kadada think, Jones, she was my muse. Totally. Tony ads. Kadada Jones with the short to- hair. Totally. <laughs> totally. No, but I think that, um, I think it's, you know, that seeing that and cause you, cause you, you hear that a lot, you know, for people, you know, you can't be what you can't see. And I think that there's, I think that we, we do have to adjust that because we do have to dare greatly. We have to encourage, we have to encourage people who feel that they're different or feel that they're marginalized. There is a place for you in fashion because if you think about how fashion has been pushed forward, those were, you know, if you think about 50 years ago when it was Halston and Bill Blass and, and you know, these people who some names are names that some people know and not everyone does, but, you know, they were coming from them. They were gay boys coming from the Midwest and there was no place for them but New York. So there's, a, so there's, there is, there's a, tra- there's a tradition of that in fashion. And, um, and so I think that we can embrace it. And I think that, you know, there's what I would encourage, um, and perhaps it's easier said than done, but what I would encourage, um, you know, people of color to really think about is you don't have to have a role model to do it, do it because you want to do it. Um, because that's how white people think. White people think, you know, men don't think, I'm the first man from Iowa or I'm the first, yeah. they, 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 they want it. If it distinguishes them, if, if they can, if it's a place that they can get, they can say, did you know that I was the first? But hmm. I think we need to be more focused on this is what I want. How do I get there? I love that. I am officially, that was my word of the day. Like I am good. I am motivated. Let's go take over the world. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's, Let's do, it. do it. It's a new day. I'm ready. Um, I, oh my gosh. Like I, I mean, I could literally talk to you for a million years. Like, I know this I has just been, love this has been fun. <laughs> this has been real. This has been love really it. fun. I really, I appreciate all the work that you put in, the, the, all the work that you put into this. I was talking to my family about this the other day. It's like, don't worry about having to work harder than, than other people. Worry about having to work hard because you're going to have to work hard. You know, it's like, it's like even pro- like LeBron isn't sitting on the couch before the uh, game. No. <laughs> he's, you know, he's, he's, he's in practice. He's, he's lifting weights. He's, you know, he's, I mean, that was the, the most, I think one of the most magical things. I don't really follow sports, but, um, you know, I was, I mean, it feels like so long ago. And I was, I took Kobe's death hard. Um, But, you know, you think about how hard he worked and that, that Mamba mentality and, and the, the comp, the, I mean, I'm not super competitive, but how competitive he was and how he really, um, you know, that he would grind and grind and grind. And that's what's required. That's what's required. And I think that we, and, and don't think about measuring yourself up to other people. Make sure that your standards as high as it can possibly be. Um, and there'll be people like you and people like me who are making sure that there are places for people like that.
because that ethic is really important. It's really important. And, you know, it's, and also don't worry about how many more, don't compare yourself to others in any way. Don't worry about how many more chances someone has or, 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 or the way that, you know, yeah, the, as, as we were talking about before, things are easier with money. I mean, they're, they're easy, yeah. you know, it's, it's nicer, it's nicer <laughs> to sit in first class than it is to sit in, you know, in, 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 uh, in basic economy, let me tell you, but that doesn't necessarily mean that we won't all get there. So I think, yeah. you know, focus on, we have to focus on being the best that we can be. And it doesn't matter who's been there before. It doesn't matter who, you know, and to angle ourselves towards and show that we're willing to do what it takes and finding the people who are who've got the right instincts and who want to help other people um, because those because that's true leadership and those that. are the people that we want those are the people that we want to make ourselves in the image of so if you can find those people then founder looking at her right now but not coach seat coach like coach with a capital c the coach of the team you know like a john thompson like a phil I jackson love it. I not, love coach, it. not basic economy. <laughs> Don't put me in there. <laughs> but I'll ride there if I have to. You know, if I have to, I'll do, I'll do what it takes. And I think that that's that's the message that we have to because because we know how to work hard. Yeah, we know absolutely. How to work hard. I love, but you know, when you love it, it's just. I mean, I could do it all day. Like I love, love what you it do, and you'll never so work much. a day in your life. That's what they say. That's what they but say. I love reading, reading, yeah. writing, studying, working. I love it, and I love yeah. passion. Yeah. No, I'm, I love it. I love where it. Where did your, you know, I I have to ask, where did your love for fashion come from? Were you, was it total mystery. someone in your family or? Nope. No way. It's a total mystery. I have no idea. I started, my friend Amy Standen uh, and I would, you know, this is we're total latchkey kid um, era, <laughs> um, you know, stuff that you would, <laughs> like, you would be on the cover of the New York Post if you did, if you like, just let your like eight-year-old kids like, just watch MTV and eat a bunch of junk food and read <laughs> magazines. People would be like, that is literally the worst parent in the world. Absolutely. Um, yeah. It's, so my friend Amy Sandin and I, she was, I think she at the time was maybe in fifth grade and I was in fourth grade. Maybe she was in fourth grade and I was in third grade. And we bought, it wasn't a September issue, but we bought, she loved Vogue. And I think we went, Vogue was $3 then. Um, I think it's $8 now. Um, and we went like to like Walgreens or something like that. And we bought Vogue and I remember reading my first Vogue and I was just like, I love this. And, you know, tearing out the pages and sticking them on the wall, like the Calvin Klein underwear ads, which were quite racy for a third grader. Yes. Um, <laughs> but we, you know, that was the, that was the, um, but that's, I think from that point, you know, I loved sort of, I loved the fantasy of it. I loved brands. I loved models. I loved designers. I loved, you know, I just, I loved all of it. And I think, um, I, that's, that's where it started. And from that point on, it was, cause it was also, we, you know, we, I think at that time we really engaged in popular culture in a different way. Yeah. Because yeah. it was, you know, because the monoculture definitely existed. So it was like there was, you know, you could learn almost everything about, uh, almost everything about subjects clustered around a per, like one particular hub. Um, and I think that fashion was integrated in a different, fashion hadn't become, it was obviously an industry, but it hadn't become the, it hadn't sort of uh, generated all the offshoots that it has now. So, um, you know, and also, you know, cable, sort of basic cable was was emerging. So they needed programming. So you would see, you know, CNN had style with Elsa Clunch and, you know, there was, you could, there was more, fashion was more kind of integrated and kind of through composed through a lot of, there was House of Style with Cindy Crawford. Yeah, that came oh my goodness. So, so that was, um, 
yeah. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, it certainly wasn't how we consume it now. So I think, um, but that's where it came from. But yeah, I guess my mother, my mother liked to sew, but I think that's because my mother is she's very Virgo and um, she sort of likes the technical, she's mathematically minded. She sort of liked the, likes the technical aspect of it, but it wasn't, but my, but certainly when I, you know, when I was 10 and I wanted an Hermes bag, my parents were like, <laughs> what nope. the heck? Like, where did she come from? So I, so who knows? I have no, I literally have no idea. I mean, it's, wow. I mean, it maybe would have been more useful to be a prodigy at something else <laughs> that actually made money rather than spent it. But that's, um, but that's, that's how it, that's just, that's just the way it went. I love it. Oh my goodness. Oh. Did you watch the style network by any chance? I, I think the style that I've seen the style network and I remember working with them, you know, on shows, but I don't think, I think that was maybe post. Yeah. That was maybe because then I, you know, when I left for college, we didn't, there was no cable in the dorms. So, uh, that, yeah, so I no. don't even think we had, and, uh, that was definitely the era of like must see TV. So we were all like, that's what we were all You're like, over it. <laughs> totally. But I was still, I mean, I think, and I think my senior year in college, I lived with two guys. Um, and we all had sort of our interest. They were like really into Nintendo 64. And yes. Um, oh, and was, are you into video I, games? And I, I never played video games, but I had 12 magazine subscriptions when I was a senior in college. <laughs> and they were like, what, they're like, why are there, like, why do we trip over magazines wherever we walk? So what are you going to do? It's like, whatever. I oh my, so you are now working, are you working with or for the CFDA at the moment? <laughs> I, I mean, anyone that you work with, you end up working for. I know right? that's what my, life, like, my life as a for? consultant. So so the so the quick answer is when I started when when all of this you know I've been trying to figure out as as you know as we were mentioning you know fashion has changed and how people consume fashion and how much fashion they consume and and you know fashion's been been uh, sort of taken to task for you know issues like sustainability and and you know people you know you get to a certain point you got a lot of stuff so. Um, so, you know, what, what's our, what's our footprint? What's fashion's footprint? Um, and I think we also in, you know, the, the early two thousands had a groundswell of all of these designers and people start, you know, starting their own businesses and there were too many, there were too many. So, um, that didn't necessarily reflect what people needed or how they spent anymore. So, cause clothes are really, really, designer clothes are really, really, really expensive. They're too expensive yeah, they in my opinion. They're too, they're, and they're too expensive for anybody, even though, you know, the world has a lot of billionaires now, but I, I think yeah. it's, but billionaires, but let me tell you, I have yet to see a billionaire who has more than two legs and two arms and two yeah. heads. So it's like, there's only, there's, there's a critical mass of, of what you're going to be able to, to buy. And, you know, if you look at people like, you know, Jack Dorsey or Jeff Bezos, they kind of dress the same way all the time yeah. and yeah. kind of schlubby, right? So, um, <laughs> So I think, but you know, when, so, you know, I was, I was contemplating is this, and I talked to people about, you know, going back to consulting, which I'd done from 2008, to 2014. Um, and, you know, working on different kind of brand strategy, but the job of PR has really, 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 really changed. Um, certainly as it was done when I did it and, or when I was coming up in it, um, all, all to do with, you know, digital, digital marketing and, and, you know, the sort of the, the, how print has shifted, et cetera. You, you got it. I don't need to explain anything. So, um, I, so, you know, figuring out, you know, I've applied to, you know, some kind of SVP jobs and, you know, maybe thought about doing crisis communications and a couple of other things that, that I was interested in. Um, 
And then again, you know, this, there, I started really thinking about and being able to talk about um, race and not vis-a-vis fashion, all the fashions, what I know. Um, and it's like, is there an opportunity to maybe put these things to, to be of use and to, and to put these things together? Um, you know, my, my interest in, and my background in public relations and, and some of the crisis stuff that I was talking about, but also like, how do we, but having been a manager and having served on, on committees in, in my other jobs about, you know, uh, about, you know, traditions and, and, and work culture and, and really being jazzed and really finding that kind of stuff really interesting. Um, and so I called Stephen Kolb in, in the CFDA had made their announcement and, um, in June, the beginning of June about, about Black Lives Matter. Um, and, and really fostering equity in the fashion, being a leader in fostering equity in the fashion, fashion business, you know, through their, through their own programs, but also in, in conjunction with their, their member body. And I called Steven and I said, Hey, Steven, I think I want to pivot a little bit to do. And Steven had been my client when I, when I worked at KCD, um, I was actually his, his first publicist at KCD. He started a couple of months after I started at KCD. And so I, Stephen is someone I adore, Stephen Kolb, the, the CEO of the, of the, the CFDA. And he, um, and he and I have been, been friends, you know, at, well after I left. And so, um, and I said, Hey, you know, I just want to kind of throw it out there that, um, I'm thinking I'm going to start doing this. And, I would love to work on anything that you guys have, whether it's, whether it's on a project basis, whether it's, you just want my opinion. If you want to run yeah. something by me, if you want me to talk to somebody, um, I would, I would love to do it. Cause I'm going to do this. And like, would you guys be my client? And he said, I'm going to get right back to you. So I, he connected me, he connected me with Cassandra Diggs, who, uh, has since then been promoted to president of the CFDA, Stephen Staff CEO and Cassandra's president. We started talking about some things that they were working on um, that, that she had with the with the group that had that had created the board statement. Um, Tom Ford's been very involved, which is terrific. And everyone in, in the CFDA has been has been supportive and has really been on board with this. I mean, I know it's one thing to say you're on board because it's pretty uh, controversial yeah. to say that you're not on board, but it's it's another thing to do it. And so um, through that came the opportunity to work in this capacity with, you know, they had created this, this role. Um, and I am working and, and, and the CFDA has become my client, but, um, in, in a more official, in a more official way where it's not just, Hey, you know, they're sort of sending a document over to me (laughs) and saying, Hey, if you get to this, like, would you just rub, like, would you just check and see if there are any typos? So that's been really amazing. And I've been having some conversations with a couple of other, I, I'm, I still have, have one, um, uh, PR client that I work with. He's a, a great woman founded business called the sleep code. Um, and, um, which has been, which is sort of about, about sort of sleep as wellness, um, we, sort of the fundamental piece of wellness. It's like the thing that we all have plen- ample opportunities to do right now, but nobody can really get good sleep for a I number wish. of reasons. I have two toddlers. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> on top of everything else, right. On top of everything else that is, that is distracting us and like making us toss and turn at night. So, um, I've been working with, with them as a brand, which is, um, really kind of, you know, beautifully curated e-commerce, um, around sleep. And then a couple of other conversations that I'm having with some really interesting conversations that I'm having with some people that I really, really admire, but have never sort of worked with. Um, Amazing. And that has been really great. And I, and I, I just have to put in a plug for, in particular, there were two women whom I'd known, you know, enough to say hello, but not had a particularly, it certainly had not had a, like a warm, friendly, like let's go out to dinner or even a coffee relationship with. 
Um, and they have, um, and you know, they had had sort of takes on, on this, um, on, on Black Lives Matter and, and sort of, you know, more kind of social justice at, at work and, um, through the companies that they work with. And I just reached out to them and I said, Hey, would you be interested in just, do you want my two cents? And they were so welcoming and they were so, and we had, and we had, and as I said, two people that I think have done some really, really amazing things. Um, and I think those have, and who knows if they'll turn into work, but I think they have turned into, I, I would, I can't speak for them, but, um, really, um, really, really productive, you know, conversations with people who I think have a lot to contribute to this business. So, you know, the, so the plug that I will make is that what's the worst that can happen? Hmm. Reach out, you know, do it in a respectful way. Don't, you don't have to push your way into anything. You don't have to demand, you don't have to tell people what they're doing wrong, but say, Hey, if you ever wanted to talk to me about this, um, or I'd like to talk to you about this, do you have time? Do you have 15 minutes? Do you have 20 minutes? Um, and the worst that the literally the worst that happens is something that happens 1 million times a day, which is that someone does not respond to your email, (laughs) you know, but like, we should be able to like get over, you know, feeling, feeling crushed by that by now. I mean, I send out, I mean, as a PR person or as a, Uh, you know, as a, as trying to interview people, I mean, how long, how long did you have to track me down for this? And you sent another email that's saved in my drafts from May. So it's, you know, I would say, you know, obviously do it, you know, do it in a way that feels comfortable for you and you think that it's going to elicit the best response, but you know, yeah. what's your question? What's your question? Figure out what your question is and then go and ask it and see what develops. I love that. I love that yeah. so much. And you know, I have to ask, you know, because this is a fashion moment, what is your favorite fashion moment of all time? It can be personal or professional or both. In your case. Hmm. That's a good one. You'd think that I would have, uh, I would have this, um, I would have this more at my disposal. Actually, there are quite a few, so I'm going to have to pick whatever, whatever I think is the best one. Um, I mean, I've had, I've had quite a few. I think, um, there is, I have had the benefit the, the, the um, incredible privilege of working with amazing people and people and having experiences that I just, you know, the spectacle of course, but also, um, just people that I really, whose work I really admire and people that I never would have imagined that I would meet, um, I mean, I think there's a lot, like, you you do get to you meet some of your idols and I think about Tim Blank's I had seen on television on, on fashion file. And I, I love it. I finally had to stop saying to Tim, you know, when I would like, you know, I was had to stop cornering him at a party and saying, I just, you know, I want to tell you that like, this is an amazing, like I told my mom, I met you. (laughs) And it was like, usually when you tell someone that, like I, Oh, I, I've been watching you on television since I was a little kid. It just makes them feel old. Um, but uh, I did that with Lauren Azirsky and she kind of ran away when I first met her. They're like, oh, she's so my saying, first interview for the show. So, yeah, no. so you're like, you're saying I'm old. Um, <laughs> but I have to say that the, um, 
it's, it, you know, I probably go back to all the time that I spent when I, when I rep- when I worked for PR consulting, um, and I represented Dries Van Noten, who is, and Dries still has, you know, many of the people that Dries has working for him have worked for him for years and they still work for him. And, um, you know, some of the shows are so, and Dries's perspective is so magical and he is such a, um, you know, he's a, he's this, very self-effacing man, but so smart and also, but, and also, you know, quite convicted about what he, you know, I think people think of him as shy or they think of him as, but he's quite convicted and they think he, he has a very, very clear vision and, you know, some, he, for his 50th show, which is now over 10 years ago, um, his 50th show, he did this, this presentation where we were in outside of Paris um, in a, you know, place where everybody was getting lost and people didn't all have cell phones. And that's when you would still, you know, get your cell phone from like the, like the office in Italy. And it was like a plus three, nine number. And like, you had to put the chip in it, you had to charge it. I mean, it was like, it was, I mean, it was nothing. I mean, people don't understand how easy it is now. Um, and you know, people, cab drivers and people were like, Oh, I was in, you know, and cab drivers in France were like such jerks. And they were like, no one would drive me out here. And I remember, you know, some people like tried to take the, the, um, the not the metro but the you know the the, the train the train and yeah. um you know it was just like you know because it was in La Crenove and La Crenove is is oh a stop gosh. on the way out from the airport anyway yeah and so and we didn't know if he, it was at 8 p.m and there was like another show ahead of it and oh he God. and he did but Dries did this this I mean the, the clothes were incredible and it was probably spring I'm not going to, it was, it was, I was working for Pierre. So it was some, it was sometime between 2004 and 2006, maybe in 2005, but it was a spring collection and these beautiful clothes. And what he had, he wanted this party where he wanted this rock and it was a dinner and he wanted this sort of the idea of this raucous party where people were dancing on the tables and all of the, the models and came walking. They had built this, it was like 300 meter table and all of the guests were seated on either side of it. And that became the runway. People were sitting, even the runway was the table where people had eaten food. <sighs> And the models came walking down and it was just, and we worked and we were out there until, you know, we, it was, it was so complicated. I mean, all of the production around it, not that we did the production, but the people getting their invitations and getting them out and organizing transportation and there had to be buses and there had to be, and some people had their own cars and then the cars had to, um, you know, and like, you know, we're working on like walkie talkies and it wasn't like, like I said, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the age of the iPhone. It was still about five years before the iPhone and, and, and even Blackberries, not everybody had Blackberries. But it was just this, it was such a moment. And Dries was so, McQueen was, I went to a number of McQueen shows as well. You know, the, the designers, and when we talk about shows and, and the importance of shows, I think I'm happy for shows in some way to go away um, because what you really remember at the end of the day is the ones, you remember beautiful clothes, of course. Um, and I think Valentino has done that beautifully. I think, you know, in the days of Celine, you know, I loved everything Celine. Mark Jacobs does it. but these shows that were a moment and you saw, and it was, you know, to, to, uh, you know, Ravel's Bolero and all of these, and this, this parade in the finale of the, this parade of women walking down in these beautiful clothes, um, you know, with Dries, this very layered kind of, it's a bit folkloric, but also yeah. you know, the prints were amazing and the volumes were amazing. And, just to see all of these women walking down the, you know, and, and people just burst into spontaneous people were, were sobbing. I mean, it was just, you know, those moments. And, and I had a lot with Dries where it was this, where there was really such, even though you watched the rehearsal, even though you'd seen all the clothes, yeah. when you saw it all put together and you just felt there was something so stirring about, about those moments. And like I said, McQueen was definitely like that too. Um, 
not perhaps not the final and well some of the some of the shows I mean some of the shows his you know he showed that people you know with the big sort of hoof boots with the yeah with the, um you know that wasn't that wasn't as emotional but some were just you know were, were just just these really lyrical beautiful and to have been in the thick of all that and to have seen sort of all the stress of getting people there and people are yelling and walking talkies and, <laughs> you sure. know, and, and pushing and pushing physically pushing people out of backstage and all this other stuff. And then just to have that moment of calm when the lights go down as the PR person uh, and you take off, you rip off your, your that headset, headset. And, you, and you're like, every, you're like, okay, everybody's in their seats. You're like, okay, we're going to close doors ready to go. Uh, and and I, I have to feeling. say, I'm glad I don't have to do that anymore. I don't think I have the stamina for it, but it was, but it was a magical time and I just loved it. And I loved Dries and I loved everyone who worked for him and, and went, worked for him. And when I actually made my last season before I went to KCD, I remember, um, being, I remember going to the bathroom downstairs in the, um, in the office in, in Paris, in the Marais and just sobbing and thinking, I'm just going to miss these people so much. And it was really, that was a, a really beautiful formative time. And I think, you know, the sort of the applicable message that I would say from that is, is a little bit about what we were talking about before is, you know, those days in your career or before you have a lot of responsibility or before you're divorced from the things that you love doing, but you can no longer do anymore because it's for a younger generation to do. And you're, you know, spend more time in meetings or making decks or whatever it is, or, you know, making more executive level decisions. I hope people savor that, you know, not, I think there's a, there's a real emphasis on, you know, you see, young women either as bloggers or who who founded their own companies who've been very 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 successful and i think that it is easy as a you know and you know people have as i said college is much more expensive than it was when we went so um you know people taking on loans and you know you know parents who may have you know depleted their savings or, or have lost value of their you know their portfolios because of the recession and and all of those things and i think people are much more conscious of things like that um and, you know, when you, and when you have people like, you know, everyone displaying what they own and what they wear and what, you know, what they have and that sort of whole Kardashian moment that, you know, high, high, high consumption, um, uh, values. But I think, you know, to be able to just really savor that moments where you're not the most important person, you're just the person who can kind of, um, who's been instrumental in, in helping it all come to pass, but also who still has the ability to just to take it all in. I hope people still enjoy that part, whether you're working in a magazine, whether you're working in a PR firm, working for a designer, you're working on a, you know, a technical side. I mean, there's so many opportunities to be in this business that are, that are not just the things that we see and are not just sort of at the, you know, the, the high visibility roles. And, um, you know, that those are where the, the best moments in my career were, um, that yeah and there will still other, be other great great moments in my career and i loved managing people i loved my team i loved i loved all that but it was different you know it wasn't a moment it was it was a much longer um it was a much longer process it was a longer play so mm. um you know get just say, savor those things it doesn't matter that you're not making all the money it doesn't matter that you're not even sometimes that you're not recognized, you know, I would see the people who like knew all the models and knew all that, you know, the, the sort of, you know, PR people who, who knew everybody and who were, you know, who were sort of inducted into that world and, you know, got welcomed by the, the, you know, the key hair and the key makeup. I thought, when, you know, yeah. when can I be that? Um, it happens, you know, it all happens yeah. in its own, it all happens in its own time. But, um, you know, to, you know, to be kind of this wide eyed kid, um, that was, you know, I, I, I have, I, I don't need, I, I have, I have a lot of love for that person because she was just beginning to see it all happen. And I think that, you know, she was, and, and she had a lot to learn and she, 
she really threw herself into it with, um, with a lot of vigor and enthusiasm. And may we all have that, you know? I love that. Thank you so much, Bonnie. This Thank has been you. amazing. This um, was great. It was, I am it was just so floored. <laughs> I've learned so, so much today. Just, You're and so I am sweet. so inspired. And just speaking to you, it just reminds me of like why, you know, the why and the magic and having other folks in that space who understand that is just phenomenal. So thank yeah. you. This was fun. This was fun. I, <laughs> I mean, I think it's so great that you're doing it. And I think that you're, I mean, and I, I, as, as I was just saying, I think there's so many different ways to be a voice and to contribute and still participate and learn from this, from this. And, you know, we should sample them all as many as interest us, you know, we should see and, and see where it takes us. Cause I think it's a really, um, you know, we, like we want to keep growing and we want to keep, we, we want to keep exposing ourselves to new things that make it, that, that keep it interesting and keep it, um, and keep it fresh and, and, you know, expand our horizons. So I'm so glad that you're doing it and it's, and you're doing a great job. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining me for this week of a fashion moment. If you like what you hear, we'd love for you to join our community of listeners and spread the word about the show. We also want to hear from you. Share your favorite fashion moments and dream guests with us by sending an audio clip or email to a fashion moment podcast at gmail.com. Or you can tag us on Instagram at a fashion moment and you could be featured on next week's episode. And don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review and let us know what you think. Until then, see you next time for another fashion moment. Podcast production by Rebecca Rashid and John Taylor Williams. Digital media production by Megan Porras. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Patrick Patrickios for their song, Hot Coffee.